singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in two ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. Today, my guest for the second time will be British author Callum Chase. Callum previously was here on my show discussing his uh, excellent uh, sci-fi novel called Pandora's Brain. And today, he's back to discuss his latest book, which is a non-fiction one titled Surviving AI, The Promise and Peril of Artificial Intelligence. Welcome, Callum. Hi, Nicola. How are you? Fantastic. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, I know it's been a few months since your book. Uh, maybe, was it now three months since your book uh, uh, was available? September. September, so maybe four months or so now because it's the end of January. I apologize for that, taking that long. <laughs> That's quite all right. You've got a busy schedule. Thank you. So, so let's let's jump in, uh, Callum. Tell us what surviving AI is all about. It's designed as an introduction to the whole field of artificial general intelligence. Are we going to get it, and are we going to like it? Uh, in a sense, you know, it does it does what it says on the tin. It, it's about the promise and peril of artificial intelligence. In the foreword of the book, I think you say that uh, this book is a companion to Pandora's brain. What do you mean by that? Well, it's about the same ideas that inspired the novel Pandora's Brain, um, <clears throat> which are, frankly, ideas which have obsessed me for 15 years or so since I read um, one of Kurzweil's books, uh, are, we, are We Spiritual Machines? Since I read that, I've been really intrigued by the idea that we may create an artificial general intelligence, an AI which has all the cognitive abilities that we do, and what that will do. Will it bring us heaven? Will it bring us hell? Uh, it'll probably be one or the other. Um, AI is galloping ahead at an extraordinary rate. Um, you can almost see it happening. Uh, you know, just last week, DeepMind beat uh, the European champion at Go. Uh, last year was a bit of a tipping point, actually, for, for AI. Drawing level with humans in uh, speech recognition, in visual, visual recognition, in natural language programming. So it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating time to be looking at these things. So the, um, those ideas really interest me, and I find it fascinating how there's a small, there's a small number of people around the world, uh, many of them listen to your podcast, who are very au fait with all these ideas. The great majority of people in the world have no idea about it. They're just beginning to get an idea because, uh, frankly, when Nick Boston published, published his book, Superintelligence, in, in uh, spring of 2014, that kind of woke a lot of people up in the media. Uh, and so there's been a lot of stuff about it in the media in, in the last year. But where I live in, in rural England, it's a, it's a completely alien concept. So there's an awful lot of people who need this kind of missionary selling about these ideas. And that is really why I wrote the book. Um, I think that people who are familiar with the ideas will find it, find it interesting still because it brings together, I've tried to bring together everything under one roof. Um, but it's also a great way to introduce new people to the, to the, to the thinking. So w when you speak of the two, big, the two books being companions, 
Do you mean that they're the two sides of the same coin, one being fiction, one being non-fiction? Do you think that uh, one should be read before the other? Do you think they're complementary in, in some ways? Where, what's exactly that companionship I'm trying to figure out? That, that's exactly it. One, one is fiction and one is non-fiction. So one's a novel uh, about a young man called Matt who goes through the process of, of witnessing uh, the creation of the first AGI and, and then see what that, see what that does. Um, and then the other is a, is a non-fiction, sort of almost philosophical uh, exploration of the ideas. Is it possible? When will it happen? Will it be good for us? How do we make sure, how do we make sure we get the good outcomes rather than the bad outcomes? And so are you targeting different people with each of those books? And what's the observation in terms of the results so far? Which type of book appeals to what kind of uh, audience, you think? It's it's hard to tell because you know you, you get a certain amount of, of feedback from the audience and so far I'm very pleased it's been very good the the reviews on Amazon are, are overwhelmingly positive and uh, sales for a couple of self published books are very good um, but I don't know I don't have kind of uh, detailed breakdowns of the audience reaction like a, a professional marketer would uh, if I was selling coke or something. Um, <laughs> But as I say, you know, the, the response has been good so far. Can you tell that one book's been better received than the other? Surviving is selling quicker. Um, it's a shorter book and perhaps more people like nonfiction. I don't know. Um, I think that my skills, my, my experience leans me more towards being a nonfiction writer because that's what I've done most of my life. I was in business for 30 years, did a lot of writing. I was a journalist as well. So I've done a lot of, of non-fiction writing. Uh, fiction writing is really hard. I suppose to other people, it's, it's probably the other way around. To me, if you write a novel, you have to create a whole load of characters and a, and a world from scratch. And if you're writing a science fiction novel, you've got to create a world that doesn't already exist. You know, Tolstoy had it fairly hard because he had to create a whole load of characters fighting in the Napoleonic War, but at least that was going on when he was doing it. Um, Asimov and Clark and um, lesser mortals like me, we have to invent a world which doesn't exist yet. So that makes it doubly hard. Um, that said, I really enjoyed writing Pandora's Brain, and, I, and I've written the first draft of its sequel. And anybody who's read Pandora's Brain would probably, I hope, would be pleased to hear that... Um, uh, the, the end of the the end of Pandora's brain isn't the end of Matt. He has a lot more adventures to come. Um, one thing I learned when writing a novel, uh, so sort of information for any aspirant novel writers out there, the first draft is called the shit draft. You don't show it to anybody. Um, you go away and rewrite it, and then you probably have to rewrite that as well. Pandora's brain went through eight rewrites, and Pandora's Oracle, which is the sequel, is probably going to have to go through the same number again. But I'm not doing that at the moment because I'm writing my next non-fiction book, which is called The Economic Singularity. Uh, surviving AI focuses mostly on the longer-term prospects for AI, artificial general intelligence. The Economic Singularity talks about technological unemployment, machine, machine intelligence automation, which I think we're going to get in 20 to 30 years, and I think it's going to be massive. And, and ironically, I think we're even less well-prepared for that than we are for the arrival of AGI. You know, there are four existential risk organizations around the world looking at how we 
prepare for the arrival of superintelligence. I know of one organization which is dedicated at looking at uh, the potential arrival of, of technological unemployment. There's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of talk about uh, universal basic income, but there's not a lot of sort of systematic and ongoing monitoring of the process. And if it happens, which I think it will, it's going to be huge and we're not ready for it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and we are going to come back to that uh, topic in a little while. But before that, I do want to have to, I do want to spend some time on your current book. Uh, so let me start by reading sort of the the gist of, of the of the opening of your book here, where you say, well, the argument of this book is that AI will present a series of formidable challenges alongside its enormous benefits, that we should monitor the changes that are happening and adopt policies which will encourage the best possible outcomes. The range of possible outcomes is wide, from the terrible to the wonderful, and they're not predetermined. They will be selected partly by luck, partly by their own internal logic, but partly also by the policies by the policies embraced at all levels of society. End of quote. Yeah, I thought that was a, a very nice opening that summarizes kind of everything. Especially since you didn't miss, uh, of course, the fact that uh, there is a lot of luck involved into this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We don't know uh, what to what degree we can affect the outcome. You know, it might be that there are millions of civilizations which have gone down the path that we're going down around the universe, around the galaxy, around the universe, and there's an inevitable end point when you create the first superintelligent machine and it wipes you out. Maybe that's just something that always happens. Or maybe we're the first civilization to get to that point. Um, we just don't know. We don't know what the mix of luck or... Um, or, or choice, deliberate action is. But we have to believe that we can influence it. I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I insist on being an optimist to the point that, you know, we have to believe that we can make sure we have a, a good outcome. And the phrase I like best to sum that up is a mixture of, of Elon Musk and Anders Sandberg. You know, we, we rather than becoming the, the, the bootloader for the digital superintelligence, we want to be the mitochondria of the uh, of the of the eukaryotic cell, um, our best future is to merge with the machines, because once they become superintelligences, once they streak past us and become millions of times smarter than us, we're in an unenviable position. You know, chimpanzees as the as the second smartest species on the planet, uh, their fate depends entirely on us, and they don't even know it. And we don't want to be in their position. We want to be the smartest species. So we'll have, I think, long term, we have to join with the machines. And that's, that's why well, I really like that idea of, of, of Anders, that we become the mitochondria inside them. Uh, and, and so we evolve into superintelligences ourselves. So we're probably going to have to do a lot to make that happen. That's, that's not likely to happen just by luck. Yeah, I agree that success cannot just happen by luck. Failure, though, uh, is something that uh, is connected not only to our sort of inability to adapt and come up with certain policies, but also with a certain extent or degree of luck. Sure, sure. Uh, and, and, and failure also could happen, obviously, if we just don't bother or if we, if we spend our time squabbling rather than 
paying attention to the big problems. Absolutely. And I very much like the, the example that you gave, gave with uh, nuclear obliteration. Um, the, and the fact that, you know, in, in sort of the common psyche, everyone thinks of the Cuban Missile Crisis as the only case that we have been, that humanity has kind of been to the edge. But as you point out, there have been a number of other occasions, uh, and those are cases in which some obscure uh, mid-level military uh, individual has decided on their own to take the risk and not to follow orders, for example, or or protocol, and which basically saved the world. Yeah. and, and in other words, we were just lucky that the right people were at the right place at the right time to save us from ourselves. Yeah, that's right. There's a, there's a film which was released reasonably recently, 2014, uh, about a guy called Stanislav Petrov, who, as I'm sure you know, was, a, was as you say, a middle-ranking America, uh, Russian military officer. He was running. He was in charge of a base which was monitoring watching for the arrival of American missiles. And, and messages started coming in that uh, half a dozen American interballistic, intercontinental ballistic missiles were coming in. And the way the film portrays it, all his colleagues wanted to respond. Um, they all, because they were all convinced that, uh, that the balloon was going up. He was the only one in the room who was thinking, this doesn't, doesn't look right. This isn't the way they would do it. They wouldn't send them in dribs and drabs like this. They'd send them all in one go. And he held out for, you know, according to the film, um, 10 or 15 minutes of appalling pressure, thinking, you know, I'm, I could be consigning my country, all of my people, to a one-sided death. Um, and he was right. And then the rest of the film shows his life subsequently. Uh, he was kicked out of the military. He wasn't, um, wasn't treated particularly badly. He, his wife died and he, uh, he, he, he kind of didn't go back to work because he was looking after her. But he faded into obscurity, became a bit of a drunk, um, and then got plucked out of obscurity and taken to America where he met Kevin Costner, who was his great hero. And he got lionized a little bit and then went back into obscurity. And it's so weird that we live in this world where everybody knows who Justin Bieber is, but nobody knows the name of the guy who saved the world because that guy saved the world and in an incredibly brave way. Yes, and he was only one of several such guys that we, we don't know of. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. What's the name of the movie, by the way? It's called The Man Who Saved the World. Yeah, definitely uh, a high recommendation. I haven't seen it, but I, I, will, I will definitely see it. Hmm. But uh, let's move on. Let me ask you this, Callum. Have your thoughts changed or progressed in any way since our last conversation with respect to whether the singularity is closer or not and with respect to our chance of survival? To be honest, no. What has changed is the nature of the debate out there in the world because... um, Obviously, most people, the great majority of people, were totally unaware of it. And now they all know, they think they know that the Terminator's coming, possibly, and they want to avoid thinking about that too much. Um, within the small group of people who think about these things, you know, your, your viewers, I think opinion was fairly polarized among those who thought it was necessarily going to be terribly bad or necessarily going to be terribly good. And I, I was never quite in one of those camps or the other. I, I think it could go either way, and I think it's up, up to us to change it. Mm-hmm. 
One respect in which I have changed my view is, is the word singularity, funnily enough. I didn't like the word singularity before because it was too much associated with the um, kind of unbridled optimistic view and hence got um, satirized as the rapture of the nerds and so on. Um, I think that's changed because I think now Bostrom's book has been so influential. I think the debate has leveled out a bit. It's got more nuanced. It's got more balanced. Um, and it seems to me that, an, that most people are now coming around to a, a fairly co- consistent view, which is that, you know, it could be very good or it could be very bad. And we need to make sure that it's very good. It's, it's up to us. And because of that, I find the word singularity much less um, difficult to use. So much so that I think it's worth using for another uh, event, which is the possibility of technological unemployment and the need for a new economy. So, you know, I, I, I now call that the economic singularity. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So uh, do you think that uh, Bostrom's book provides sort of the balance point of the singularity is near? Because, I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers. I don't know if it's managed to sell as many books as Ray did, first of all. Of course, Ray's book is much older, so that gives it a definite advantage. But also there's other books like that I can think of, like, for example, James Barrett's book, which I think in many ways is better than, than uh, Bostrom's, personally, in terms of the, being the anti-singularities in your book, if I'm to put it this way. I think it will be James Barrett's book rather than Bostrom's, personally. Yeah, I think if you were setting out to um, create a polar opposite to Kurtzfeld, yeah, you'd, you'd, pick, Bar- you'd pick Barrett's book. Uh, I wouldn't do that. And I, I think, you know, James has written a brilliant book. It's, it's uh, very easy to read. He's, his, his documentary background shows very clearly in his writing. I think Boston's book is, to be honest, at a level above all of us, uh, possibly not Ray's, but certainly the rest of us. Um, it is so thorough. It's so um, clearly the product of decades of, of very rigorous thought. Um, quite hard going, but it's, it's, a, it's an essential book to read if you're interested in this stuff. And it is balanced. I, and I, I find myself in, in pretty much an agreement with most of what Nick says. Interesting. So let's, let's uh, jump into the meat of the matter here then. Uh, last time we spoke, you told me that uh, we have about, in your estimate, 70% chance of survival. Uh, and, and, and you said it's a very binary thing. It, it's going to be kind of surviving and thriving and prospering or basically extinction. Now, how do we do that? Your, your book is called Surviving AI. So the question is, how do we survive AI? How do we do it? So we need to apply a great deal of our talent to that very question. I mean, I don't have the answer. I don't have a packaged answer of it how you make a super intelligence which likes humans and wants to keep us around and then uh, enables us to join it. Uh, that's going to have to be left for people much smarter than me and for a long time. This is a, this is a generational project. But the first step is to make more and more people aware uh, of, of, the, of the dangers and of, and of the possible opportunities so that we can draw on our fantastic talent pool of 7 billion smart mammals uh, and, and you know, get enough people working on the problem. So if you like, my contribution to this is to proselytize, to evangelize the idea that AI is phenomenally important, it's going to shape everything, and we need to make sure we get the good outcomes. 
So I spend my time um, writing books and giving talks and <laughs> boring everybody that I meet. Um, and it's funny how doing that in different uh, environments has such different results. I say I live in, in rural England. And Where is that, by the way? It's a town called Stenning, which is near a town called Brighton, you may have heard of in, in, yes. in England. Yeah, so not, we're not far from Brighton. Um, Stenning is a small town of 6,000 people. I think um, in Sherlock Holmes, uh, Watson was going to spend his uh, honeymoon in Brighton with his uh, bride when uh, she got thrown off the train uh, into a river over a bridge. In the film, yes. Well, that's partly a joke because Brighton has had a long tradition of being a, a slightly seedy place. And there was the phrase, having a dirty weekend in Brighton. Um, <laughs> Bright Brighton's a good town. Brighton's a fun town. Somebody said that it, it looks like a town that uh, is helping the police with their inquiries. Uh, there's, there's a lot of sort of countercultural people there, and it's quite an arty town. Stenning's very different. It's, it's, a, it's a small small town of 6,000 people. And, and pretty much nobody here has the first clue about artificial intelligence. I am, I am seen as being a bit of a nut job uh, when I talk about it here. Whereas in London, you know, most people are at least aware of it. And I spend, I spend half my time in London, half my time in Stenning. And... Um, yeah, awareness levels vary around this country and I'm sure around every country and around the world. So the first step is to get everybody really aware of what's, of what's coming so that more and more of us can think about what the solutions might be. And when we come to need to make the choice, which we will, you know, when the democratic process turns on to which of these possible solutions to the economic singularities do we adopt, how much money do we allocate to um, institutions which are working on the problem of how to make superintelligence safe. There will be times when those decisions need to be made. We need people to be educated and to be able to make those decisions collectively. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So uh, let, me, let me ask you to explain a little bit more about the reasoning behind choosing the word survival, because survival in itself already kind of provides a charge, it provides a, you know, a predisposition, a, a stance, a point of view that it will be sort of a, a reckoning, a trial, a, an existential challenge, if you will, a, a calamity of a sort even. So why, why call it surviving AI? Because I couldn't think of a word which encapsulated both surviving and thriving. And I thought about it a lot. Um, but the I chose the word because it has, I think, the presupposition that you do survive, or at least that there's a possibility of surviving, because I do not believe that we are doomed. And it is an existential risk. I think superintelligence, unquestionably, although some people do question it, is an existential risk, one which we have to survive. But I wrote, I, I chose the title Surviving AI because I think we can survive it, and we have to decide to survive it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But but uh, what I'm aiming at here is the fact that perhaps it also shows a, a little bit of your judgment here in the sense that you are judging that we have a very high enough risk not to survive it, that it can be, that it is perhaps more likely to be negative than positive. Or am I reading too much into it? No, I think that's that's a fair comment about the word surviving and I suppose I do think if we just 
created an AGI without ever thinking about either the control or the motivation problems, then the default option probably is that we wouldn't survive it because the range of possible goals that a super intelligence can have is, is clearly enormous. We have very specific requirements for the way the world is set up. You know, we need, a, we need the atmosphere to, to remain within very narrow parameters. Same for gravity, uh, same for, you know, protection against radiation. And um, so if we, if we just neglected the safety problem entirely, yeah, I think on the whole, we probably wouldn't survive it. Now, fortunately, there's, there's no chance of that happening. Um, we're not that sort of a species, and we've already declared, you know, many of us have already declared we're going to work on this problem. We're going to try and solve the control or the motivation problem and, and, and survive it. When you say many of us have declared, you mean like half a dozen people, don't you? <laughs> well, no. I mean, Nick Boston reckons that there's half a dozen people working full-time on the problem, and that's, that was a couple of years ago he said that, and... I, uh, I know that some people say even then that was an underestimate. Now it's certainly an underestimate because uh, not least because Elon Musk has been very generous in funding more people to do it. So I, I have no idea what the number of people working on that full time now is. And, and you don't have to work on it full time. You know, there's, there's lots of smart people working in the AI field who I'm sure think about the control and motivation problems from time to time. It's, it's still a very small minority of the human species which is even aware of the problem never mind working on it but there's there's a pretty decent number of people working on it now maybe two dozen <laughs> no i think it's probably quite a bit more than that i mean i don't know i guess i guess it's in the low hundreds hmm. I, I i don't know i i at least haven't um seen any 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 references that that would show me that the people actually working actively on negating or minimizing the risks of the existential risks associated with artificial superintelligence are that substantially more than before. I only know of, of the four or five uh, think tanks and, and organizations, institutes that you've mentioned in the book, and they're, let's say at most, there are two or three dozen people, I think. Yeah, probably two or three dozen people working full-time on the problem. Uh, but if you think, if you, if you could add up all the time that other people apply to the question as part of their jobs or as part of their um uh, as part of their leisure i imagine the full-time equivalents would be in the hundreds because the point i'm I'm, i'm trying to make here is that i very much agree with bostrom's point originally and and i think that if there's been some growth on on the end of people working on the safety kind of things uh actually on the end of just merely developing ai there's been an even bigger bigger much greater jump. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. You know, uh, AI has demonstrated its fantastic power uh, spectacularly in the last couple of years. Um, you know, with, with, with Microsoft systems being able to distinguish between two brands of Corgi, which look to me completely the same, I think, in this country, only the Queen could tell them apart. Um, you know, and, and Facebook's um, deep face being able to recognize faces when they're not looking at the camera and, and so on and so forth. Uh, there's, there's a lot more people working on, on AI pushing forward. You, you've, of course, got uh, Ben Goetzel's argument that we should hurry up and get to AGI as soon as possible so that when it happens, it's still a very hard thing to do and only very large organizations can do it. 
so that you don't have an overhang of processing power, which makes it relatively easy for anybody to, to build a, a superintelligence. Because what you don't want is, is uh, every nut job building one in their backyard, because at least one of them would not be good. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and uh, going back to the book, though, what, what would be the best way? What do you want to tell to people who are considering to buy or read your book? Why should they do so? Well, they should do so if they're interested in these in these discussions. Um, most people haven't had the, the luxury and the time that you and I have to read as widely and to listen to as many you know talks and podcasts and what have you. Um, and so, the feedback that I get from people is that even people who know think they know the arguments really well, they get a few little nuggets here and there, uh, and it kind of pulls all the, all the pieces together, gives them a framework. Um, the other thing is that, of course, everybody who does know these issues and cares about these issues should immediately go out and buy a dozen copies to give, give to all their friends who don't. <laughs> that's, a, that's an obvious thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Good thing to let us know then. Uh, now, let, let's move on to, to your uh, next endeavor, which you said will be a book about the uh, tech, uh, economic singularity dealing with uh, technological unemployment. As you know, it's an issue that I'm myself very highly concerned about. And even uh, Brady Swenson here sent a, a question via Twitter. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about... Uh, uh, your work on that book, how is it progressing and perhaps highlight some of the sort of most recent discoveries or things that you find interesting? Sure. So uh, I think I'm a, a little over halfway through it. Um, I've covered kind of the history of automation, the industrial revolution or revolutions, depending on how you look at them. Um, and the argument about whether machine intelligence will automate most jobs and Obviously, it's important to distinguish between jobs and work. Uh, humans will probably always work, always have projects to do. The question is whether machines will do all the paid jobs that we do or the paid jobs that most people do, such that at some point there's a large minority or a majority of the population in every country which can never get paid work again, paid jobs again. Um, so I, talk, I, I, look, I look at detail at what AI can do now, where it's going, at the, uh, the poster child, which is um, self-driving vehicles, um, the other technologies which are going to accompany this, so virtual reality, uh, the Internet of Things, personal digital assistants, and um, the other, you know, a, a range of other occupations which are likely to get automated, uh, both manual professions and manual jobs and the professions doctors, lawyers, journalists, teachers. And I conclude very firmly that within 30 years, most people will not be able to get jobs. And even when that happens, like, like superintelligence, we don't know this for sure, and we certainly don't know when, but if and when that happens, and I think it will, we are going to need a new economy. Now, what I find really interesting is... There's a lot of debate at the moment about universal basic income. And I'm going to say something now which is going to make me hugely unpopular to most of your audience, I think. I don't think universal basic income is... I don't think the time is right for it yet. We don't have an economy of radical abundance. If AIs and if machines and robots go on to do what we think they will, we will have the potential 
for an economy of radical abundance where nobody needs to work. And we will need a universal basic income at that point because you know, otherwise how's everybody going to live? And Martin Ford in his book, which is probably the best book on the subject at the moment, Rise of the Robots, he kind of fizzles out at the end of that book. It's a great book, but at the end he almost gives up in despair because he, he cannot imagine the American voting population accepting the idea of universal basic income. And I've talked to a number of Americans about this, and they're all quite pessimistic um, because universal basic income sounds like socialism, and socialism is illegal in America, despite the fact that Bernie Sanders is saying he's a democratic socialist. But, you know, there's a revulsion against it. Yes, but the interesting point that uh, Marshall Brain made was that how many people from the population in the United States would have predicted or uh, accepted just mere 10 years ago both the legalization of marijuana and the legalization of gay marriage? Yeah, and, absolutely. And the answer is that if you were to predict those things, you, you would have failed completely. Yeah. And they came out of the blue and in a very short period of time, maybe three to four years even, they completely swayed public opinion in the exact opposite of where they started at. Yeah, he, he's absolutely right. And I do think the same thing will happen with universal basic income. When it becomes obvious that a decent, a decent slug of the population cannot work and it's not any fault of their own, um, then I think you know, everybody will just say, okay, we're going to have to pay these people because we can't have a third of the population just starving. You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that wouldn't be acceptable, not least you know, there'd be riots and everybody's lives would be unsafe. But I, but I actually think that you know, Americans and every other nation, um, we, we are, generally speaking, good, good people and we don't want to see each other starve. So I, I think universal basic income will be, will be introduced um, without too much difficulty. But I don't think it's the solution to the big problem. The, it, it is the solution to the problem of how we all afford to eat in a society where we can't get jobs. I think the big problem is cohesion. There is a bunch of other problems which we can get into, if you like, like meaning and um, you know, how, how an economy works if people aren't buying things. But to me, the big problem is cohesion. Yeah, but cohesion is connected to the ability to eat because if you can't eat, there is no cohesion. And then there's no reason why you should abide by the system, whatever kind of system it is, whether it's a monarchy or feudalism or, or whatever, capitalism, communism. If you can't eat, you would never go along and you would rather rebel. And, and we know, uh, for example, that uh, those are kind of, uh, that atmosphere creates uh, the environment for revolutionary upheavals and social unrest and maybe even civil wars. Um, we know that, by the way, at the time of the Great Depression, I think unemployment was only about only about 25 percent. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that with technological unemployment, we would dwarf that number probably. Yeah, we probably would. And in fact, we've already got that number in, in parts of Europe. Uh, in, in, Spain, in Spain and Italy, they have those sorts of levels, uh, or they have had those sorts of levels in, you know, very recently. No, that, that's all absolutely right, but I don't think that universal basic income solves the problem because those people who are in receipt of universal basic income will be living off the generosity of those people who are still working or who own the capital, in a sense, uh, essentially, the people who own the AI. You know, the, the ultimate reductio ad absurdum is that Larry Page, Sergey Brin, and Mark Zuckerberg own everything 
because they own the AI, they created the AI, they own everything, them and their mates, and, and they pay the rest of us a universal basic income. That's not a sustainable future, I don't think, even though I think those people are, generally speaking, people of goodwill. Uh, I don't think they're malevolent robber barons. Why would it not be sustainable? I'm trying to think here because I know people like, for example, Warren Buffett in particular, and maybe even Bill Gates, who actually disagree with you on that. And they have both uh, argued in front of Congress that they're not taxed enough. Uh, And that's not necessarily generosity. That's basically the way that the political and, and social system works in order to provide for that cohesion that we were talking about because you cannot have peace um, in, in a social situation where someone owns everything and others or the majority of people are unable to even put food on the table. Yeah, sure. So, so that's not necessarily generosity. That's basically uh, providing for peaceful and uh, so social cohabitation and, and, and for the stability of the system. And, and enlightened self-interest. You know, they, they don't want to be pariahs who are hated by the rest of their species. Um, they, as I say, I think those people are people of goodwill. You know, and Zuckerberg as well is, is, is putting 95% of his, of his wealth into, into charitable organizations. I mean, some people are quite cynical about that because it's still going to be under his control. I'm, I'm not cynical about it. I think it's a brilliant thing to do. Um, and and uh, I, I applaud him for it. It's still nevertheless true that you know that the, the world's top billionaires own an enormous amount of, of the world's assets. Some of them, like Gates, are in the business of giving it away, and Zuckerberg. Others, like Carlos Slim, the Mexican um, billionaire, are not in the business of giving it away. But I think things will be different post the economic singularity for, for this reason. If we get to a place where a small number of people do own all the assets, some of them will decide this is not a good place to be and we want to give it away. We want to put these assets into some sort of a holding company, maybe give it to the state. I don't think that's the way forward. Maybe give it to some autonomous AI-run, publicly-owned institution operated through the blockchain, Um, but, but others won't. Now, when we get to that point, the rate of technology change with regard to human enhancement will be enormous. And I don't believe in a digital divide now. Um, people, people worry about a digital divide. They worry that you know, the, rich, the rich have all the best toys and poor people don't have enough. But actually, when you think about it in, developing con- in developed countries, there isn't really a refrigerator divide. There isn't really a dishwasher divide. And most people who want one now have got a smartphone. I don't want to sound complacent, but, but you know, I think that's broadly speaking true. But when you get to a point where every week a new innovation comes along, which enables you to double your cognitive ability or become twice as strong as you were a week ago, at that point, this sort of divide, however well-intentioned the elite is, becomes really serious. and it seems to me quite likely that if we don't find a way to get pretty much all of the assets into some form of public ownership, then we will fracture as a species into two or more different species. Um, A species is defined as two animals which are able to mate and reproduce. 
And I think we could fracture so much that, that some members of what was our species would not be able to do that with others because they'd become so different. And that's really dangerous. Uh, when you have that level of disparity, pretty much inevitably, you're going to have winners and losers. You're going to have one lot dominating the other lot. And, and isn't that the best, in that case, argument for uh, maximum basic income in that case? Because let's face it, the disparities and the divide that you're describing will be a direct consequence of the economic divide. In other words, if my capability to cognition or to strength and speed and awareness is directly related to what to my purchasing power and I am able to upgrade it every couple of weeks, as you said, or, or for whatever period of time, then it's even more important to have a lot more egalitarian society than before. Because in that situation, those differences would be exasperated much more. And so the extremity will be pushed even further. The spectrum would be even further. And therefore, it would be a lot more socially combustible uh, in terms of, uh, you know, civil wars and, and violent conflict, etc. So to my mind, that's actually the best argument that what I would call maximum basic income is is required to kind of level the playing field as much as possible. Not that that's desirable to be perfectly level or even possible, but I'm saying at least to remove the extremities of it. And that's what politics and ethics is all about. In fact, I would suggest that in a situation like this, ethics will become the operating system of politics, or should anyway. And and that's the perhaps the only way of, of, of surviving. And, and, you know, one of my former uh, uh, professors in political science told me once that politics is, is all about who's getting what for whom, under what condition and for what purposes, right? This is what politics is all about. And then ethics in its own right, I would add, would probably be the operating system which would ar- allow this to regulate, postulate and implement even these things, hopefully so that we don't have such extreme outcomes? Well, universal basic income is the idea that somebody distributes um, a, a living wage to those who can't generate it for themselves. So that presupposes that there is somebody who owns the assets which are fueling the economy. And that's the thing I think we have to get beyond. See, my point is I think UBI will come pretty much automatically when you get a large minority of people being clearly uh, perpetually unemployed. I don't think there'll be much resistance to it because otherwise you're going to have people starving on the streets. Um, And probably armed conflict as a result. And and, and lots of conflicts, particularly in the States where so many people have got guns. So so it's it's going to happen. But but my, my point is it's not enough. It's not nearly enough. Now, I'm a, I'm a capitalist. I've been in business for 30 years. I believe that the capitalist system, along with technology, has, is, the, um, is the system which has meant that this is the best time ever to be a human. Uh, there's that great phrase that it, you know, it's the worst possible system except for all the others. But it has been fantastically successful. It isn't perfect, far from it, but it's been very successful. And the fact that China has adopted it now means that Chinese people are not dirt poor anymore and they're now the biggest economy in the world. Um, so 
it's very peculiar to me to find myself in a position saying we're going to need a new economy in which private ownership of the means of production won't do anymore. I think universal basic income kind of presupposes that that continues. It's, it's a continuation of capitalism. It's capitalism being bountiful towards those who can't work. I think we're probably going to have to go well beyond that. Uh, and this is what I don't think we've really begun to think about. Um, some people will hear, will hear that and think, yeah, great, you know, and, and this is what we've been arguing for for a while, socialism. But I think that socialism demonstrably, I know this would be not accepted by a lot of people, but I think social, socialism demonstrably doesn't work when you don't have an economy of radical abundance. But in, a, in an economy of radical abundance, it's probably necessary ah. to, avoid that, to avoid that fracturing. Very interesting coming from a capitalist, wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I sort of I feel like I'm, I'm a turncoat. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. And, and by the way, um, uh, economists such as uh, both Hayek and Milton Friedman were in support of uh, uh, universal basic income. Yeah, but they certainly weren't in. They certainly weren't in support of ending the idea of, of private ownership of the means of production. No, no, but I I haven't brought that idea to today at all. I haven't touched it at all. And, and there's many different uh, versions under which uh, universal ba basic income can be uh, implemented. So, uh, yeah, they don't necessarily involve uh, nationalization or or uh, of private property per se. Um, yeah, and, and I have to take some sort of, uh, I, I, I want to kind of push back a little bit on China because you see China's done much better off than most of us and they haven't done, done it the American way and they, they haven't done it even the European way. They've done it the Chinese way uh, and that's not been straightforward capitalism. It's been uh, very command and control in many ways, and in many ways it still is. And uh, they've done very much better off than the United States and than most of us in Europe. Um, and, and, and so I think that's actually a great case where uh, sort of what Tony Blair used to call capitalism with the human face, if you will, uh, is, 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 is probably a good example of. Uh, but, but even more so, I think, Tell me, you're saying that there's going to be so many amazing changes in the next two or three decades. Don't you think that it only makes sense that our economic and social system inevitably must also change radically from what it is today? Or, or, why, or do you think it, it, that will remain constant in the midst of all that other transformative change? Well, first of all, let me just, just come back at you on China. Um, there are lots of different versions of capitalism. You know, the American and British approaches are reasonably similar. France and Germany have a fairly different approach. Um, China has, again, a different approach. But I completely disagree with you as to whether that is capitalism. China has embraced capitalism. I, I ran a company that uh, sourced some product from, from China. And the guys who run that company, actually the guy who was, was, was one, one owner, he was the ultimate capitalist. And... He got, sure, sure. He, got, he got state support, but he operated in a capitalist system, and it was because he, because he and many other people like him operated in a, uh, in a market capitalist economy that China got rich. Now, you say China's done, done better than us. 
the average China Chinese person is much, much poorer than the average Canadian, Brit or American, much poorer. China's the world's biggest economy because it's got 1.2 billion people uh, as opposed to America's 300 odd million. Um, you know, the average, the average standard of living is much lower, but it's much higher than it was because of capitalism. Um, going back to your, your, the question you asked about, um, will the system change? It, it will change, clearly, when you have lots of middle-class people unable to work ever again, the system will change. But the change could be restricted to something like universal basic income. So, um, <clears throat> you know, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Mark Zuckerberg at the top of the pyramid, um, the bankers and a bunch of other people who've got uh, physical investments all over the place, they carry on owning their assets and they just agree that they can be taxed more and the state hands out a generous dole to the rest of us. That's a, that's a potentially, for a while, sustainable outcome. My worry is that it, it isn't sustainable in the long run and we need to start getting ourselves used to the idea that when we get past the economic singularity, we need an entirely different economic system. And I don't, I, don't, I don't think most people have even begun to think about that yet. And the astonishing thing is that that could happen in 20 or 30 years. That's not very far away. Um, and, and it's so difficult because it's tangled up with all sorts of legacy ideas about, about economics and about politics. Um, and most of those we're going to have to shed. You know, we, we're going to have to try and find a way to put behind us the old divisions between socialists and capitalists because we'll be in a new world. Yeah, that's precisely my point, and that's why I like your sort of singu economic singularity uh, uh, term, because I do agree with you, and, I, and I've been saying it for a while, that you know, when you have such fundamental changes, inevitably we must have a new social system, and capitalism will, has played its role, as far as I'm concerned, it's reached its peak in, 20, in the 20th century, and it's been you know, on the downward slope since then. And inevitably will be replaced. Uh, I also agree very much with you that that uh, uh, technological unemployment is likely to happen. I actually think it's more likely to happen faster than you think, uh, and, and to a greater degree. I wouldn't say a third of, of middle class. I would say 80 or 90 percent of the people, maybe even 95 percent of the people. I would say the default mode would be that people will not be able to find a job. And I would say this will not happen in 30 years from now. I would say that it will start happening in 10 years and it would probably be finished within 20 years. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of a lot more concerned that the timeline is even faster. And of course, I'm very happy to be entirely wrong on that, uh, completely wrong on that. And, and, and yeah, so I think this will be in a way, to be honest, this is moved up higher on my priority list uh, as opposed to the existential risk posed by AI. So AI used to be about number three or four, somewhere there. Now it's probably five or so. And this has moved one, one notch up to maybe about four or so, three or four. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's been a, a similar shuffling of priorities for me. AI, super intelligence, used to be number one. And now it's number two because I think the economic singularity is... A thing that if we don't get through it successfully, it could uh, it could destroy our civilization. It's it's probably not an existential threat in that I, I think there will be humans will survive whatever happens, 
Absolutely, um, yeah. But I, but I think it could it could really um, degrade our civilization enormously. Um, of course, that would have the advantage we probably then wouldn't get to the superintelligence threat, uh, at least for a long while. But um, that's not a, a way to avoid that that we, we particularly want. Um, yeah, push us back by decades, if not centuries, uh, and in the process would probably destroy the political system, uh, the the habitat, the environment, uh, along uh, alongside a great part of the population, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, as for timing, who knows? It's it's really really hard to say. I've um, one of the things I've just finished doing in the book is to write a sort of a timeline, a, a fictionalized timeline. Um, I think describing the way the world could be, even though you know it's wrong, and I go to enormous lengths to say, look, this is wrong. This is not a forecast. This is just a, a, a possible future. Uh, so I, I've kind of spelled out by taking three snapshots at uh, 2021, 2031, and 2041. Uh, and I just looked at uh, 15 different industries and wrote a little snapshot of what each one might be like at each of those stages. And what it, the way it sort of panned out for me, just intuitively, was that the process would be mostly complete by 2041, uh, with very strong signs of it by 2031. But who knows? That could be out either way by, by 10 years. It doesn't really matter, actually. I think you've said this in the past. It doesn't really matter whether it's 10 years here or 10 years there. The point is, if it's coming, and if it's something that we need to take action to get the good outcome for, then we need to start thinking about it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Which is why both of us are doing what both of us are doing. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So, Callum, we've been talking for about um, 60 minutes or so. Unfortunately, I would have to bring our conversation to an end. Uh, but because time is advancing. But let me ask you, what's the best place for people to follow your work and find out uh, what's the latest update on you? Uh, I have a blog. Uh, which is www.pandorasbrain.com. It's named after the, the first novel. So Pandora's has got no apostrophe and there's a hyphen, pandorasbrain.com. Um, so uh, I, I post Pandora's there occasionally. Brain.com. Yeah, yeah. But if you Google Pandora's Brain or Google my name, which is spelled C-H-A-C-E, there's not too many people with my name around. So I'm not too hard to find. I tweet a lot. Um, I, I, I love Twitter. I think Twitter is great fun. Um, so yeah, tw Twitter and Pandora's brain. But of course, the thing that to do is to, is to get the books. That's the real need. I agree. I agree very much because uh, uh, I do find that both of your books are very helpful in their own different way. And actually, I would say even if you've read one, it's always good to look at the other side of the coin and, and it, it always helps, I, I find. Even if it's a little redundant, I personally find it to be rewarding, and, and, and I would recommend that people do that. Thank you. Now, uh, how do we wrap up this conversation? We, again, like went all over the place, covered a bunch of topics, had some things we agreed on, had some things we disagreed on. So what, in your view, is the best way to close our conversation? What's your message you want to impart on us? Well, the, the thing I keep thinking at the moment, uh, and what I... Uh, keep coming back to when I give talks is this century is the century of two singularities and the generation that is coming up uh, my, my son is 14 that generation has has been born at the best time ever to be human and also the most important time to be a human 
Because if they get these two singularities right, then our future is golden. And if they fluff it, we're doomed. So this is the century of two singularities, and we have to get both of them right. Wow. So getting one right is just simply not enough. It's not going to cut it for us. No, got to be both. Wow. So we have our work cut out for us then. Yeah, yeah, we're handing on an interesting baton to the next generation. As the Chinese say, we're living in an interesting time. Certainly are. Absolutely. And it was, uh, as always, uh, very interesting to read your books and great pleasure to talk to you, Colin. So thanks very much for being with us today. You're welcome, Nikolai. Great to talk to you. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.